Welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. Two quick notes before we jump into this mind-blowing episode. We're about to learn a lot about Saj Razvi's psychedelic somatic model. And to clarify, in the session that you will hear today, the client is using both ketamine and intranasal oxytocin to promote connection and trust. And also, I want to make sure all listeners understand what somatic therapy is. Somatic therapy is using words and intentions to access what's going on in the body versus psychotherapy, which is using words and intentions to access what's going on in the mind. And yes, body and mind are intimately connected, even one. But somatic therapy is arguably a more accessible portal into the heart of trauma. Because, as Bessel van der Kolk reminded us, while the body keeps the score, the mind erases the score. So let's jump right into the return of Saj Razvi to Back from the Abyss. So it's such a treat to be here today with Saj Razvi, my dear friend, and hugely popular contributor to Back from the Abyss. I've been doing the listener survey analysis, the most popular episodes that we've done. Saj, we are part one and part two of Healing Trauma with Psychedelics from season one. And that, yeah, that was such a meaningful thing to record. And last year, we had a really fun talk about transference and countertransference sadism. And now, season three, we're back with you, and we're doing a really interesting kind of deep dive on transference, but this time with psychedelic somatic therapy. So just a little introduction. Saj is now the head of training of the Psychedelic Somatic Institute, and he's combining psychedelics with somatic therapy to work on people's deep trauma. And today we have a very special treat because we have an audio recording that Saj did at a recent training with a therapist. And in just a minute here, he's going to introduce this. But I think this might be the most astounding example of transference come rushing to the surface. And Saj and I both love talking about transference. But when I first heard this audio recording, I was completely blown away. And we both quickly agreed that we had to do an episode on this. So with that introduction, Saj, give us a little um, intro what you're doing now with Psychedelic Somatic Institute and then lead us into what this audio recording is. Hi, Craig. Yeah, thank you for having me back. Um, I, love, I love being on your show. Um, so what we're doing at this point is uh, uh, what we call an apprenticeship psychedelic training, uh, which is highly individualized, experiential, um, because we approach therapy, but also psychedelic therapy, like an art form that you just cannot um, communicate through lecture. You can't have a, a 300 person uh, uh, online class about it. People have to experience it for themselves. So that's what our focus is at this point. And in terms of what we're about to hear now, uh, it's, a, uh, it's a, a session that took place in one of our trainings. And the student, so basically it's myself, my co-instructor, and three students that are present in the room. And the student in this case, whose uh, session we're going to hear, Natasha, uh, this is actually her fourth session. Her three previous ones were with cannabis uh, psychotherapy. And the purpose of that was to resolve dissociation and get her autonomic nervous system online and uh, functioning as a support for the therapeutic process. Uh, so for this fourth, oh, and, and I should say what came up in those sessions was 
um, a lot of involuntary uh, muscle contraction in her neck. Um, uh, she felt like she was being pushed into the couch. Uh, There's a lot of fear responses, and generally she felt like she was being choked, right? And so what this session is about is sort of a continuation of that, but she's elected to work with ketamine at this point. Uh, so she's, um, when we start with the audio here, she's already taken 100 milligrams of oral ketamine sublingual lozenge. And really everything about the session is, all the interventions in this session are designed to evoke that level of relational wounding that we have in our systems. And this comes up through negative transference being expressed. So um, a quick primer, I think, on on transference is that the, the very basic definition is when you have uh, incomplete or uh, uh, complicated feelings, emotions, thoughts around a, pre, uh, a past relationship in your life, that is being transferred onto a current relationship at this point, right? So that's a very basic definition of it. And if you think about um, sort of a situation that's relatively uh, non-relational, so if you think about a trauma that people can have that didn't fundamentally involve relationship like a car accident or a surgery or a one-time single event trauma like a mugging or one-time assault where you don't, uh, you're not in relationship with the people involved in that, then the processing of, of those traumas do, do not yield a lot of transference. It's little to no transference when, mm-hmm. when that work is being done. However, contrast that with the type of um, traumas that people have in their family of origin, right, when they're children, sort of repeated. Uh, and let's say that the trauma happens at the hands of a family member, like a parent. So in that case, there will be a great deal of a relationship that gets encoded in as part of the traumatic memory, right? So the very definition of family, the very definition of father, of mother, of intimacy, of touch, closeness, all of these concepts, if if this trauma happens in, in a person's life early enough and in their family of origin, then all of those concepts get tainted with the, the flavor, the color of that trauma. Uh, so this is really what leads to um, complex PTSD. It leads to dissociation, and it leads to uh, treatment resistance, uh, among other things that can lead to those things. But but certainly, sort of the the complex PTSD relational wounding route is a huge um, it's a it's a huge thing for uh, the psychotherapy population. I mean, in my mind, treatment resistant PTSD is almost always interrelational. Yeah. It's attachment or it's, it's, you know, we're such a social connected species that to have, um, to be traumatized by your fellow species and especially if it's a caregiver is just, I mean, how do you even get to that? And I guess that's what we're going to hear here in a couple minutes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, um, you know, as children, our primary defensive response is to, you know, go for family, go for, um, mom, go for dad. Uh, and if one of those people are, are where the threat is coming from, then the only option for children is dissociation, mm-hmm. right? So, so yeah, it's a completely different, complex PTSD is a completely different animal, mm-hmm. and there's good reasons why um, it's really hard to get to, mm-hmm. right? Um, so, and, and I would also say that the vast majority of what we see in therapy are people with this, right? That 
Um, I think in a decade of practice, you could count on one hand the number of times somebody has secure attachment, you know, a good bonded relationship with their family, and then they had a, um, a traumatic event later in life. Those are not the people that we see in therapy, mm, no. right? <laughs> it's, it's much more of the family of origin, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what we're going to be doing here is... Um, focusing on transference and evoking it, but we're going to be doing something very different than it, than, uh, than what, you know, traditional psychoanalytic schools or psychodynamic, uh, training, uh, programs do with it. Basically we're looking to physicalize it, right? We're looking to have the transference emerge and become an embodied process. So it's not an ethereal, uh, concept. It's something that's very palpable and present in the room, right? Now, there are, I think, three things that really, three components that really go into the response that you're about to witness in this session. The first is the medicine, right? So the, in this case, the ketamine. And ketamine is very effective at allowing the user's mind to sort of drop into that layer of primary consciousness, to drop into their uh, subconscious mind, and we get, gain access to all the non-declarative programming that lives there, mm-hmm. right? So fantastic. But the thing to not confuse is that we, we can do this with a number of medicines. We can do this with cannabis. We can do this with MDMA. We can do this with psilocybin, right? So in other words, while all of these medicines have their own unique flavors, they all take us to primary consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So, so wonderful. And by that, that, is that synonymous with the unconscious? Um. I, I, I hold it as such. You know, I think the unconscious is a vague kind of <laughs> philosophical concept that was, uh, that, you know, the field had to invent prior to um, neuroscience. But, but yeah, I think there's a fair overlap between, between the two. And certainly in Robin Carhart Harris's work, he, he equates the two. Now, the other two uh, elements that are at work here are two pieces that are distinct to the PSIP model, which we're using uh, as a modality here. So the first is something we call selective inhibition. And uh, basically, defined, uh, selective inhibition defined is essentially uh, we are looking to inhibit uh, a person's voluntary coping mechanisms, voluntary avoidance mechanisms, voluntary calming, you know, all the things that we're trying to have people have healthy resourcing and coping mechanisms when they're out in their life and having to work and pick up their kids from school. That's wonderful. But when it comes time to processing, we're actively looking to inhibit those in order so that we can begin to see the involuntary signal arise. Right. Um, And you'll see a a quick example of that is very early on in the session here. Uh, And then the, the second component of the model that we're using is sustained eye contact. And what that is designed to do is um, it evokes transference, Mm. right? Because if you think about it, how do children, how do infants really know of the existence of the other, right? So certainly through touch and being held and uh, that that kind of contact, but also, you know, um, eye contact is huge there, right? So one of the, the big things that we find that eye contact does in the psychedelic session is that it prevents the session from becoming a transpersonal session, meaning that people don't go to, um, they don't go to God. They don't go to unity consciousness. They don't sort of transcend the human realm when you're holding them in eye contact. They're in their human existence, making contact with you. And the process is all about 
the relationship. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so basically what we're about to hear is just to summarize a session, a training session with a therapist, Natasha, this is her fourth session. She's had three cannabis sessions, but this is a special session. This is with ketamine doing a, an exercise to evoke transference, evoke primary consciousness where she's looking directly in your eyes and you're keeping an expressionless face and, and then it unfolds. That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing about that, Craig, is that, um, if somebody has, um, a lot of uh, secure bonding experiences with their family, right? And you can maintain eye contact with them, and they'll go to really soft, wonderful, calm places in that relationship, right? In the eye contact. They'll, they'll just, you know, go to sort of a soothing experience. So something that you'll notice is that at no point do I uh, direct or ask Natasha to go in a particular direction. I'm just following where her system is taking her in the while the sustained eye contact is going on. Mm-hmm. And I think the very last thing that is, should be noted here is that uh, no way would I recommend somebody opening up the door to this level of negative transference early in a therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. And this is because there needs to be a lot of foundational work put into place. Um, otherwise, you, you know, you will blow your client up. Um, they're, they're not going to have sort of the relational uh, trust and rapport with you to, to be able to hold this. This is her fourth session. And the only reason why we do open that door is because it's a training program and not therapy. And we want our students to be able to um, experience the skill sets from the inside out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, listeners, I, for one, I've listened to lots of therapy podcasts and podcasts where they're sort of in session and recording. And I can tell you what you're about to hear is not like anything you've ever heard. This is pretty, pretty profound. So we're going to roll it. And then Saj is going to stop every once in a while and give some commentary. And I'm sure I'll have some questions. Keep giving me the details of how you're experiencing me. Your voice is soft, but your eyes look angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I want you to notice my angry eyes and my soft voice. I want you to stay with my angry eyes. And just imagine what I might be angry at. My eyes feel sunburned. Your eyes feel sunburned, mm-hmm. like they're hot. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I want you to notice what happens right before you have to close your eyes. They and get really hot. They get really hot, yeah. And I'm wondering if you can delay that just a little bit. Oh, that would hurt. Yeah. Meaning, just notice the impulse to close your eyes. Delay it oh, just for. Burned really bad. I know, I know, sweetie. I know. Stay with it. Stay with the the burn and stay with me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See what it's like. See what I'm like in the burn. Okay, so um, I thought it was useful to pause there because that was a little bit of what the selective inhibition looked like. So, in other words the exercise was to maintain eye contact and Natasha was uh, maintaining it at times and then looking away at other times. 
right? And usually what's happening is there's something difficult coming up in a person's system, in their experience, and uh, they're managing it, right? And they can manage it either by taking a deep breath or um, some kind of distraction. And And so in this case, Natasha's management way of managing was to look away. And Almost so, like to let some air out of the anxiety balloon. That's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. And so, and so the idea here is to say, okay, what would your nervous system do if you did nothing to manage it? If we just let whatever is emerging here in the eye contact continue to emerge. And so, um, you know, she was reporting her eyes were feeling really hot, like they were being sunburned. And so the more that we stayed with the eye contact, the hotter that her eyes became. So it was a real somatic expression of uh, something difficult coming up. Mm-hmm. What emotions are here? Notice how you feel towards me. Notice how you think I feel towards you. It's just getting hotter. Yeah. Eyes just getting hotter or or everything? Just my eyes. Just your eyes. Okay. Doing great. Doing great. Stay with it. Notice my breathing just shifted a little. In what way? It's tight. Breathing is tight. Body's tight. Body's tight. Yeah. It's really hard to stay with you. Yeah. Again, keep noticing what makes it hard. My body just wants to sink into the couch. Yeah. Yeah, so let it sink into the couch and see if you can still stay with me as you sink. It seems like you're getting closer to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what does that like, that I'm getting closer to you? Well, I'm a little nervous. Uh-huh. What might happen? I don't know. Take a look. Okay, let me just pause here again. So you should know that I'm not moving. Mm-hmm. I'm um, the entire session. I'm sitting seated in a chair across from her, and this is the beginning of distortion. Um, this is the beginning of the transference coming up. And so, what we've seen in Natasha's past sessions, and what we're about to see here, is that proximity, um, closeness, was a real part of the threat, and. Insofar as she's sinking into this memory through the sustained eye contact, um, then different aspects of that are expressing in the room. So right now, her sense is that I'm getting closer and her anxiety is increasing. Yeah. And how closely are you sitting to her? Um, I would say that it's probably a pretty average distance mm-hmm. that uh, a therapist would sit from her. Because you're not trying to like get right in her face. Or not at you're all. You're just sitting at a, at a comfortable, normal therapy distance. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Take a look at what might happen if I got a little closer to you. The word that comes to mind is anger. Mm-hmm. Like you. I'm afraid of you. I keep come back to body. Everyone's just, I could barely see anyone or anything. Yeah. Everything's disappearing. Everything's disappearing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Does that include me? Uh, Am I yeah. disappearing? Yeah. Okay. So just watch this happen. I want you to just notice everything about body as you're afraid of me. Notice if you have a sense of what I might do or what I might say. 
Where your face is shifting. Uh-huh. What's it shifting into? I don't know, a different face. Yeah. Okay, so this is really... We're deepening into the distortions. And at this point in the session, Natasha is no longer trying to look away. She's no longer looking away as a management tool. So she's looking right into my eyes. She's locked into, into my eyes. And so this is really deepening the process. Now, an image that I think is going to be useful here is, you know, on the one hand, we have present moment reality going on. Um, so we have, you know, in this case... Uh, uh, five adults uh, sitting in a room, right? It's a it's a training, and uh, and then and she and I are doing this session together. So um, that's present moment reality, right? But on the other hand, there's what is known as event memory, right? And in this case, that's what is what's being evoked is a traumatic event memory through the selective inhibition and through the sustained eye contact. So an image for that is if you can think about one of those old film negatives that, you know, the kind that has an image on it, but you can see through it at the same time. So imagine taking that film negative and putting it on top of present moment reality. And so it meaning that things get a little muddy, right? It becomes a little difficult to tell, well, what's present moment reality and what's the, what's the film image, right? And so um, the the more trauma that somebody has, the thicker that, that negative film image is, and the more that that's what people are seeing and responding to rather than present moment reality. Mm-hmm. And that's exactly what we're looking to evoke here. We want this to fully show up in the room, fully manifest, fully express itself, and so her system can then engage with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, watch me shift. Getting you small. keep shifting in and out of other people. Yeah. Your voice is soft, but your eyes are scary. Mm-hmm. I'm shaking. You're shaking. Yeah. Okay. My feet are really cold. Uh-huh. Stay with cold feet. Do they feel like they're icy cold? Icy cold. Yeah. Icy cold. Okay. Stay with icy cold feet. Yeah, there's definitely fear there. Yeah. Feels like you want to hurt me. Say that again. Feels like you want to hurt me. Yeah, really notice that. That I want to hurt you. I want to ask you, but I know you won't answer. Mm. Do you want to hurt me? Does it feel like I'm going to hurt you? Yeah, you want to hurt me. Yeah, okay. Okay. So I do want to hurt you. Yeah, notice that. Yeah, you do. You can see that in my eyes. There you go. There you go. Stay with it. Stay with me. Your hands seem very big. Yeah. I've got very big hands. I think you want to choke me. Yeah. Okay, so. Wow. (sighs) Can I just say one thing about that, Sasha? Mm -hmm. When I listen to that, I mean, I've heard this section before, but even hearing it again, it's so scary. And I think as a therapist, thinking and listening to you, not trying to dial down her anxiety, I think that, you know, the tendency as therapists, when people are in so much pain and fear, we want to, we want to calm it, we want to dispel it, but you, you own it, like you own 
that you are the perpetrator, you're the abuser, that in fact you are potentially dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the way that I would relate to this and put it is that we're looking for the reality that the client is holding inside of them, right? And so, for example, when she was asking me that question, do you want to hurt me, right? So I'm guessing most of the people listening to this would are kind of crawling out of their skin saying, like, just answer her. (laughs) No, 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 I I promise I'm not going to. Right, right, but just get that if we gave that kind of an affirmative response, which is the truth, right, Mm -hmm. I I don't want to hurt her, but if we gave, if I gave that response to her question, it would, it would disable this entire world that's emerging Mm -hmm. from coming out, Mm -hmm. right? So it's hard to tell in in the audio recording, but being in the room, when she when when i asked her does it feel like i want to hurt you and she and she thought about it for a bit and felt into it for a bit and her response came back yeah yeah you want to hurt me right mm-hmm. so there was almost a relief in her that even though this is a horrible reality there was almost a relief in her that yes finally i get to say this is here oh yeah right so it's like the worst news but finally the the truth is out it's like coming home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. It took you, you had to hold this level of just tension and awfulness for her to literally go back to where she needed to go. Yeah. 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 That's it. And, um, and I also want to say anybody who's listening to that and is their, their shoulders are tight or you're feeling anxious or you're hating me right now, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? This, take a breath. I promise you this, this ends up okay. Um, but, you know, we don't know that going and we don't know exactly where things are going to land. Right. So this is just really saying, um, you know, her system is manifesting this. Right. And we're going to trust it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These hands can choke you. Notice that. I know it's my body wanting to pull away from you. Yeah. See how your body deals with this. See what it does. I'm watching your hands because they make me nervous. Yeah. That made me really nervous. Yeah, there they are. I'm just waiting for you to jump on me. Choke me. Mm-hmm. You're just waiting for that to happen. Mm-hmm. You know that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm bracing myself. Yeah, bracing yourself for it. Okay. Yeah, just notice the tears rolling down. Everything's getting foggy except your eyes. Yeah, except my angry eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Everything's foggy except my angry eyes. I don't want to. Don't want to turn away from you because if I do, you're gonna attack me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His body just tight. Yeah. Yeah. I want you to find the tightest part of your body. And again, notice if it's holding you in a static way or if the muscles are pulling or pushing or doing anything to you. Statue. Statue. It's like a statue, like frozen. Frozen statue, yeah. Just feel everything about frozen statue. Hyper-focused on me. Yeah. Frozen statue. Watching my hands, 
my eyes. Mm-hmm. What are you most aware of right now? That you looked away. Yeah. And what does that mean to you? It's scary. When I look away? Yeah. Yeah. Because I think you're going to try something. Uh-huh. A little bit of a body release. Uh-huh. How are you noticing the body release? I'm shaking now. You're shaking, yeah. So I'm going to have you really focus in on the shaking. You moved your leg and that makes me nervous. Yeah. Anything, any little bit of movement on me can be filled with aggression. Yeah. Yeah. Feels like you're going to try to jump me from my left side. Yeah. Yeah, stay with it. Stay with it all. Okay, so if it's not clear, at this point she has completely, her system has completely pulled her perpetrator to be in the room with her, right? So what we're seeing on display here is the impulse for reenactment, right? And whether that reenactment is happening through intrusive imagery or us, you know, running, escaping a family that we grew up in only to marry and recreate that exact family system later in life, you know, it seems to me that our systems are hell-bent on reenactment as a way to, you know, um, sort of classic theory here is that we're, we're looking to master what crushed us, right? And so given the opportunity, her system is, is completely recreating aspects of her childhood at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, stay with my scary eyes. And stay with your body. Would it help you to close your eyes for a little bit and be able to focus? Would that help you focus on your body a bit more? Will you stay there? I will stay here. I don't trust you. Mm -hmm. How do I know you're going to stay? I don't know if you can. You can try it for a few seconds and then open your eyes and see. Yeah, like that. Like that. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Things are getting tighter. Yeah, I tried it for longer. Yeah, tried it for five seconds and I'm still over here. Okay, so I think something unique has happened at this point in the session, right? I think we're, we're turning a corner a bit. So in my sense of it, um, I think we've deepened enough into the reenactment. We've deepened enough into her system recreating the perpetration aspects of her childhood, of her relational history. And now we're looking to sort of enact uh, re- relational corrective solutions, right? So the way that we might normally go about this, and there's an interesting deviation from that here. So normally we look at, you know, what, what is the one thing that if it were present would have made every single childhood trauma, childhood trauma much better, right? And, 
usually for all of us, that's attachment, right? That's having a, a, a competent, nurturing parent there that maybe this person wasn't able to fully prevent uh, what happened, but they could hold us in it. They could help us digest the experience. So if you think about, you know, a little kid that falls down and skins her knee and, and she wants her, her dad to pick her up or her mom to pick her up and hold her. And it, there's not, you know, that act doesn't make the, the wound heal any faster necessarily, but it does help uh, sort of dissipate the intensity of, of what happened, it, it, right? So the, the attachment is an inoculating resiliency factor. So what we typically do is we um, have people deepen into the, the trauma memory using selective inhibition, and then we add in attachment, right? We add in sort of this sense that the therapist is there in a very secure way that no matter how bad or how scary things get, the therapist is going to be in this experience with the person. So it's a a very sort of active and engaged role of, of parenting in that way. Um, in this case, uh, that's not what's being called for, right? So in this case, the solution or the corrective that's being called for is one that she's offering up herself. So if you remember just in this last segment, um, I asked her to see what it would be like if she went inside and noticed more of her body process right now. And her response was, uh, well, how do I know you're going to stay over there? Mm-hmm. Right. So immediately that's telling me that, oh, something that would be really useful for her right now is a sense of boundary, right? a sense of just that at a very basic level that there's going to be some physical distance between the two of us. Right. So that's the one that I pick up on and that we're starting to focus on as we go further into the session. Mm-hmm. Okay. Still over here. What do you notice about body when you close your eyes? It starts shaking. It starts shaking? Yeah. Yeah, stay with that. I'm just going to be seated over here. And I notice your eyes are closed. This entire time. There you go. There you go. There you go. Feel those movements. Yeah, let your breathing get tight. Let your breathing be whatever it needs to be. happening now they're relaxed it's relaxing yeah okay so let's see if it's going to a neutral relaxation that you can feel or if it's relaxing because it's getting floaty or numb it's like floaty yeah okay yeah yeah stay with the floaty stay with the floaty Okay, so I think this is a really uh, useful teaching moment here, right? That her, she was in the middle of some level of sympathetic nervous system activation. Her body was shaking. Uh, she was breathing faster. And then all of a sudden things went quiet, right? And so when that happens, that could mean one of two things typically. So A, you know, maybe she calmed down, right? Um, so there's the calming that people go into when they're feeling sort of neutral and not threatened and 
you know, they're relaxed and they're associated. They can feel aspects of their emotions, their body, and even, even the state of neutrality has a feeling to it, right? The other option that we, that could be happening here is that she calmed down because she went further into a dissociative state, right? And, um, when you're talking to somebody, it's hard to tell. Uh, they're, they're not going to be able to sort of give you a good self-report on which direction they went. But, you know, so if somebody's going to a truly neutral, calm place, they're not going to be, they're not going to feel floaty. They're not going to feel blank, right? Mm-hmm. So if they're, if they're going, if they're calming because they're going further into dissociation, that's when they're going to feel sort of hollow inside or weightless or floaty or sort of a depersonalized state shows up there. Um, and again, this is mediated by an opioid release. And what what's happening is that we're just getting to another aspect of her event memory where her system had to dissociate. And so that's what's happening in the room right now. And of course, you can't talk somebody out of it, right? You can't, you know, you can't have them become aware that they're becoming dissociated and all of a sudden they voluntarily shift out of dissociation. Um, what we have, what we do is we have people become associated to the dissociation and we stay with them in that space. We have them continue to describe it. We're, we're in relationship with them as we let them dissociate. And again, so what's happening here is we're, we're pressurizing their system to become associated to whatever defenses or whatever s- symptoms that, that they experience while in relationship. Or in this case, uh, she's becoming associated to all of this while experiencing boundary. Okay. And I want you to know this entire time you've had your eyes closed... And I'm still over here. Yeah. Don't move. Yeah. You asked me not to move, and I can do that for you. I feel like you're going to move. You feel like I'm going to move? Yeah. Yeah, just notice that. Notice that. And if you want... Sorry. Um, I just wanted to pause here just a moment just to say, look, just notice how fixated she is on my position in the room, right? My not moving is important. And she's, she even has a lot of uh, doubt about it, uncertainty about it. And of course, right, this is not a solution that actually worked back then, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she, couldn't, she couldn't say no to the perpetrator and, and he would respond this way. So the fact that she's saying no here and testing it out is, is a brand new thing. Yeah. Is it a way to sort of rework it? It's a way to, yeah. Yeah. To kind of bring back her sort of power and autonomy and not feel so helpless. Yeah. That, that a a particular solution worked. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and the interesting thing though, Craig, is that it's not like, like if this was not, you know, Natasha in her waking life could say no uh, out loud. She could say no to people. She could say no to me without any problems, right? But it's saying no in the context of this particular transference. It's saying mm-hmm. no in the, the context of this event memory that makes it so much more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Could take a look and check out where I am. Okay. They're scary. Yeah. They haven't moved. No. Yeah. So I 
heard you ask me to not move, and I'm agreeing to that. I'm respecting that. Yeah. My body relaxed. Good. Good. Are my eyes still angry? Not angry. There's a different word for it, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do we disgusted? Mm. I'm disgusted. Yeah. Uh, with what? Me. Yeah. So I'm going to say that back to you. Actually, just notice that. I won't even say it back to you. Just notice that. Very relaxed. Mm-hmm. So let me just say here that I think something, again, really interesting is happening, right? So... I think that the primary threat in the room, right, her being choked, is relaxing now a little bit because it seems to her that she can close her eyes and I'm still just sitting in my chair. Like the perpetrator is not moving his position in the room, right? So as that begins to calm, then I think her system is saying, well, I've got something else to send up, right? And, and in this case, it's. Um, again, it's another aspect of that relationship. So, you know, being attacked was one aspect. And then another one is, I think that, um, you know, whoever this person is, we don't know yet, is looking at her with a lot of disgust. Mm-hmm. It was interesting to hear, Saj, that you almost said, I think you're disgusting. I think that's what you're about to say, but then you decided not to. You said, just sit with that. Oh yeah, yeah, she yeah. Said, you exactly. You look those eyes. You're looking at me with disgust. You're like I'm disgusting, and it seemed like you were just about to like own that and say that, but then you pull back and said, "Just sit with that." Yeah, exactly. I, I think that a, a, a little goes a long way here, right? And she's so in it already that um, I, I don't need to amplify this one at all, mm-hmm. right? So she's already living in that reality, right? But just the way that I think about this, though, is that. You know, we've got a Rolodex. We've got this, like, like this, uh, you know, this binder of all these horrible memories of, uh, that were happened in any particular relationship, and one after another, the system will send up. I, I call them ruptures, right? They're these ruptures that get sent up and they get expressed, and then we can begin to work on the repair. Right. So there's like a, a thousand and one of these ruptures that anybody has with if they have insecure attachment. So just by one by one, they just keep manifesting. Away. Yeah. You know, I'm back in the room. The fog went away? Yeah. Good. I'm, back good. In the room. I'm glad. And how do you see me right now? Am I still disgusted? Um I a little bit want the camera to be on you. Mm. So I can see what if I'm what I'm seeing if it's real or not. Yeah. What are you seeing? Shifting in your eyes. Mm. From what to what? Mm. Mm. What's shifting in my eyes? They just keep shifting. Mm-hmm. Like from different emotions, I guess. I'm I'm going through different emotions. Maybe. Like anger and disgust. Yeah. 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 Are they all 
What kind of emotions? They're not good ones. Not good ones, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I just want you to watch that. Well, let's well, let this happen. Watch my eyes flash through anger, disgust, and anything else that comes up. Okay, so again, here here's that Rolodex, right? Just um, my eye, my face is shifting for her. My eyes are shifting. The emotions that I'm feeling are shifting for her, right? Her mem- her system is just bringing up one event memory, one relational memory after another, one rupture after another. My sense is that it's it's an act of generosity. It's an act of love to allow your client to have all of these projections come up. Let them be become your face. <laughs> let them become who you are, and uh, let her let them to own them. Yeah, and let let them be there. These are human experiences, and this is a truth that your client is holding. It's it's much better if these come up in a therapy environment than if they come up in a relationship in, environment, right? And because they will come up with intimacy, right? I'll guarantee you that. And so you know. Uh, you know, and they'll they'll come up in a marriage, they'll come up in committed relationship, or we can do things that really cause them to come up in a therapeutic uh, container like this. So, and let, let me take a moment here because I, I do have some things to say about transference, right? So, first of all, we're all doing it all the time, right? mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, um, you know, it's just a question of how deeply we're in. Uh, a, a particular trance and um, whether that transference is coming from a very intense sense, a set of experiences like trauma, for example. Right. But this, I think we, we walk around with this idea that we have some sort of objective grasp of reality. And I don't think we do. Right. I think that our very lens upon which we, through which we experience reality is, is highly conditioned by our history, by our memory, by our relationships. And to some one degree or another, we're constantly projecting and altering the present moment through this lens. Right. And so if you're sitting there with your client and you know, they say something to you and your eyebrow goes up, right? <laughs> like that is meaningful in their transferential reality. They, they are, they are in, uh, internalizing that and that means something for them. How you talk, your tone, your look, um, whether you, you know, when you go on vacation, right? All of these you, relationship is always sort of understood through the the lens of our our relational history mm-hmm. right and so i think about there's a, a quote by faulkner right the the past is never dead it's not even past right <laughs> <laughs> so i love that <laughs> so it's it's right here right and so let's just normalize that and you know the thing is that like you know if let's say your client has um uh, a conflict with you that's based in in transference or a rupture with you they may or they may not talk to you about it d- depending on whether they trust you or not your client will make an assessment and if they think that you can hold their their negative things that they think about you because they do right they're in relationship and they have this uh, probably difficult relational history and so 
if they trust you enough, they'll they'll speak their their negative transference. If they think that you won't take it badly, if they think that you won't become defensive, if they think that you won't turn on them, then they'll they'll be much more willing to sort of describe what what they feel. And the reason why it's so difficult is because not just clients, but all of us, we believe our transference, right? We, we think that it's real. We think that we have an objective grasp on reality and that this is really happening right now. And, you know, so a, a phrase that I use in, in my trainings and throughout supervision for people is that transference does not come with a sticky note on it saying, I'm transference. Right? It's, it feels real. It's immersive. It's bottom up. It feels like everything about it feels like you're accurately assessing what's going on in the world. Yeah. Right? It's almost like virtual reality goggles yeah, that's or something. Right. Yeah. You're just so sum- submerged, <laughs> submerged in it that... You don't even know like the fish in water. It's just part of how you're perceiving the world and but per- particularly what's happening between another human and you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. And it's a virtual reality goggles, distortion goggles that you've had on your entire life. And so you don't know what life looks like without them on. Mm-hmm. Right. It gets foggy again. It gets foggy. Yeah. Now I get, I'm yeah. getting numb. You're getting numb. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're mad at me as back. Mm-hmm. Your hands make me nervous. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I want you to notice that even though my hands make you nervous, my eyes are angry, I might have discussed towards you that I heard you ask me to not move, and I haven't moved towards you at all. I still think you want to choke me. Yeah. Do you do you want to choke me? Mm. Let's see. Let's see what you sense. Is there anything here about me that tells you that I do not want to choke you? I don't know. Hmm? I don't know. Yeah. I don't do- think you will, because other people are here. Uh huh. But if other people weren't here. Yeah. Yeah, you would. Then I would, yeah. Yeah. Stay with that. Stay with that certainty. Mm. Yeah, see? Maybe let's try going inside again a little bit, maybe. And then find body here. And and let it respond. It's really... I see a lot of red. Yeah, lots of red. My body's really heavy. Heavy. Like that statue feeling. Uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Like very solid. Yeah. And my breathing is getting shallow. Yeah. I'm wondering, I'm going to make a suggestion here. I'm wondering what it would be like for you to say the word no to me. Confusing. Yeah, confusing. Yeah. What's it doing? It's not as uh, rock solid anymore. Mm. It's not bracing. It's not bracing? Yeah, there it let go. Uh Uh-huh. I didn't realize it was holding so tight. Yeah. And I could say no. Yeah. Does it feel like you're less here? 
No, it feels like I'm here. Okay, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, so if it feels right, if you feel like there's an impulse for it, then go ahead and say no to me. No. Mm. Your voice is soft. I like your voice. Yeah. From this place, does it feel like I would listen to your no? Yeah. Aha, aha. Yeah, this place feels safe. Yeah. Yeah, so I want you to know that I heard your no. I heard your boundary. And I'm not going to violate it. I'm not going to get up from this chair. I'm not going to come towards you because I heard you say no to me. It worked. My body feels trust. Aha. Your body feels trust. Mm-hmm. Okay. Let's just notice that, that that's here. Just notice what trust feels like between us. Notice what trust feels like in your body and what it does here. If it relaxes you, wonderful. If it tightens you up, wonderful. We're going to go with it no matter what it does. Just this kind of flowing, moving. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Kind of like on a nice relaxing raft. Yeah. Yeah. And does it feel like the trust is here because you're not making eye contact with me right now, but you're hearing my voice? Yes. Okay. Good. Good. I'm glad that there's something between us that feels trustworthy. And that rubber band on my lungs isn't necessary, isn't there anymore. Okay. Let me just pause it here for a moment and... And say that, um, yeah, this is what it's like for these rupture and repair waves to come up, right? The rupture is intense in this case. It's a lot of threat. It's a lot of uh, intense perceptions of disgust and all sorts of things. And I think there are really two things here that really caused the, the, uh, us to turn the corner. One was um, her sense that the boundary was holding. Right. So initially, when she was testing out the boundary, she would close her eyes for a second and then open them back up to make sure I hadn't moved. And then she could just test that out for longer and longer periods of time. I think the other thing is that um, mostly for her, the visual channel was what was bringing the, the threat, was what was bringing the event memory with it. And her audio channel was connecting to my voice, which always felt soft and warm to her. If you'll remember throughout the entire session, she's, she's saying your, your voice is soft, but your eyes are angry. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think that there's sort of those two components that we're suggesting to her that the voice felt like, like a, like a lifeline, like a reassuring resource, even while the visual channel was giving her lots of threat impulses or threat, uh, uh, signals. Mm -hmm.
What on your lungs? The rubber band. Oh, yeah. From a few sessions ago. Yeah, yeah. it's been here the whole time. Oh, wow. Wow, it's been there the whole time, and now it's not there. Yeah. So I can imagine that feeling very airy. Yeah. If the, if the constriction, the rubber band yeah. is not on your, your lungs. Yeah, enjoy that. Enjoy the airy. Do we still feel connected while this trust in airy is going on, or no? Mm-hmm. Your voice is soft. Yeah. I'm scared to look at your eyes because it's nice just to hear your voice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there an impulse to look at my eyes? Um, yes and no. Mm-hmm. I feel like I should, but then it'll get It'll get scary. Yeah. Yeah. It might be that both sides are going to be here for a bit. Mm. Yeah. And I think the trust side is going to, is showing up. And that's kind of new. Yeah. Yeah. Just thinking about looking at your eyes made my breathing shift. Mm Mm-hmm. In what way did your breathing shift? Um, it's like a tightening, like mm-hmm. preparing for, mm, for, in case you do get angry. Yeah. Well, I want to say that I'm glad you have all these preparations. I'm glad your body helps you prepare in case I get angry. And I'm glad that your body knows how to feel relaxed and airy when you feel trust with me. Yeah. It stopped doing that when you said that. It stopped preparing. Oh, it stopped preparing. Yeah. Nice. Should I look at your eyes again? Hmm. Yeah, I think that would be good. Here I am. Trust that you're going to stay in that chair. Aha. Uh-huh. Aha. Uh-huh. Really nice. Yeah, that you're no worked. Yeah. You trust that I'm going to stay in this chair. Mm-hmm. You don't think? I don't think you're going to hurt me. Yeah. That was nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's really big when we're making eye contact and you don't think I'm going to hurt you. Yeah. Yeah, so I would say the proof is in the pudding now, right? So for a while there, she was not making eye contact and was feeling our connection in a good way and the threat was ebbing. And now she's back to making sustained eye contact and the threat memory is not nearly as strong or or in the room the way that it was before. She's still sensing me as as good right? mm. and, and not threatening to her. What caused that transition? Like, can, can you put that into words, how she went from your eyes, your expressions, just pulling her back into mm-hmm. trauma to being able to look at your eyes and see like, your warmth and kindness? 
the first thing to know is that this session took place over an hour and a half. She really marinades in her threat reality. She feels all the details of it before her system is ready to move through the negative transference and get to the other side. So it does happen quickly, um, just not as fast as what we see in this edited recording. Now, a good theoretical understanding of what's happening here can be explained by a phenomenon known as memory reconsolidation. So without getting too far into the neuroscience of it, we know the brain is able to repattern memory when two things are present. First, um, the original memory has to be evoked, right? So this means that you have to feel or remember or somehow re-experience the events of the past. And if it's inaccessible to you because of dissociation or there's otherwise you know, a lot of compartmentalization that's preventing you from feeling it, then this process is not going to work, right? Your mind is not going to enter this memory reconsolidation phase. In Natasha's case, the memory state is fully in the room uh, in the form of her projections and negative transference with me, right? She's feeling that reality that's it's really being expressed. Um, now, the second component needed for memory reconsolidation to take place is that there has to be what's called a prediction error, right? So I w imagine that you have a client um, and this person has a lot of abandonment or betrayal in his formative years and his system reenacts this pattern in every adult relationship he has, including the relationship with you. Right, so his non-declarative programming tells him that at some point, regardless of how good things are, it's going to go south, and you know you're going to um, you're going to abandon him or fire him from therapy. So, and he's you know his reenactment impulse is doing everything it can to get you to fire him from therapy. In fact, so let's say you're prepared for this and you don't take the bait. Right, you refuse to fire him. You don't turn on him. You don't play your part in his. Um, you don't play the role that he's handing you in his reenactment scenario, right? So the discrepancy or the distance between, you know, what, between his expected version of reality, you know, the horrible thing he fully believes will happen and what actually does happen is what creates a prediction error, right? So basically the brain is saying, wait a minute, what just happened is really different than what I expected to happen. And so it wakes up, right? It undergoes a, a very complicated neurochemical unlocking of long-term memory, which, you know, then can be altered and repackaged and re what or what's called reconsolidated with new information about oneself, about the world, about relationship, about human beings um, that could be a lot better than the original programming that people have. That's the goal of it, right? So um, in Natasha's case, again, right, having a boundary that's being respected, uh, you know, by her perpetrator, right, um, is what's creating the prediction error, right? Having someone she identifies as a perpetrator uh, to be finally attuned to her and curious about her and her internal world while the fear memory is playing out is creating a pretty significant prediction error, right? She, her system does not expect this to happen the way it is. Her system fully expects me to stand up and, and you know, violate boundaries. Uh, I will also say that with many other people, you know, having an attuned, nurturing, secure attachment experience with their therapist is a profound prediction error. And so we, we frequently use secure attachment as our blanket 
prediction error error generator, <laughs> right? So basically, most childhood traumas would have been much better if a competent, caring adult was involved in it. And so, uh, very frequently, when people are replaying those childhood memories, you know, we we insist on attachment. We insist we introduce attachment into that scenario, and it and it uh, creates this uh, memory reconsolidation. So this is all to say that really we're balancing two different things in the PSIP psychedelic session, right? So on the one hand, we're working to evoke trauma memory, which we can do pretty effectively through the body and through negative relational transference, which you, you hear here. Um, and on the other hand, we're looking to create correctives or you know relational prediction errors, right? So we're always watching and adjusting to where the client is on this spectrum. You know, do they need more memory evocation or do they need uh, more relational correctives? Um, you know, I find that the being too biased on either side makes the process not work so well, right? So there's a, a real dynamic quality that shows up in the client's process in their in their system when you really have these two balanced. You get the the world as they have internalized it, as they actually did experience it, and then you have this new possibility that's coming in in the present moment, which is really stirring things up. Okay, so uh, the other, I think, really interesting uh, way to like think about what's happening here is if you think about it, psychedelics by themselves are full of prediction errors about reality, right? So. Um, I'd, I'd say that's one of the main things that they create that they do right in in traditional plant uh, medicine ceremonies like ayahuasca people who might otherwise walk around feeling like the world is a cold uncaring lonely place will these people will often get a sense of a responsive intelligent spirit that's guiding them that's caring about them and this is a huge existential layer of prediction error that gets created here Right, so the the goodness, the sense of being valued by the world, is a prediction error for many people. Right, uh, it's a very powerful one. Now, what we're doing with this work in the PSIP model is that um, we're being relationally engaged in the process in the psychedelic session. We're, we're doing this so that the prediction errors. Um, can also happen in the human relational realm with attachment, with childhood memories, right? So we're basically focusing the session to be less transpersonal and more human relational wounding oriented, right? So, and of course, we want prediction errors all over the place, wherever we can get them, right? So, uh, you know, we want prediction errors to be about the existential layer, but particularly for the mental health population, we want the prediction errors to also be about intimacy, to be about trust, to be about, again, human beings, human relationships, to be about family and closeness, um, so that all the ruptures that we have in this area um, have a chance to be reconsolidated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's just stay here for a bit. I'm looking at your eyes, making sure mm -hmm. that I can trust. I think I can. Yeah. yeah. I don't think you want to hurt me. Yeah. I want to make sense why you'd want to hurt me. I didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. You didn't do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It wouldn't make sense. But... I also want to make room if something in you 
begins to feel that way again and think that way again and see me that way again, that's completely fine. I'll be with you through that and we'll get to the other side of it. Yeah, you're nice. Mm-hmm. I see kindness in your eyes now. Mm-hmm. They're not scary anymore. Yeah, my eyes aren't scary. Yeah, we can just enjoy this. Yeah. I kind of can picture you holding a baby. (laughs) (laughs) So I will just say that um, Natasha being a mom, that's the highest compliment of safety that she can confer, right? Mm -hmm. So it's just... We're, we're going to both extremes here, right? We're going to sort of the, the negative, having fully that, and then once that's done, then there's either neutral to positive states that show up. Um, and one other thing I'll point out is, um, you know, as we're sort of heading into the finish line here, uh, I just love, you know, I, I think I there was something I said in there that like no matter which direction your system goes with this, we'll get to the other side of it together, right? That is such an attachment probe for people that like as she's sort of going, having gone through this, the thing that I really want clients to or, and her to walk away from is a sense of us, like a sense of attachment that like, oh, like, not only are things not bad here, but, but here's another aspect of what the p- corrective can look like. Here we are. Mm-hmm. We made it through that together. That felt good. Yeah. That was scary at times. Mm-hmm. Like really scary mm-hmm. for you. Yeah, and you stayed with it. You stayed with me. Okay, I'm here. Yeah, you're here. (laughs) Yeah, that was beautiful getting to the other side of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Felt really strong, like you wanted to choke me. I know. Yeah. I know. It hurt me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, anything that I did, like my eyes looking a different direction for a moment or mm-hmm. my hands moving mm-hmm. was just part of that mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Everything fogged out but your eyes and your hands. Yeah. I was always aware of your eyes and your hands. Yeah. Last summer, um, the summer of 2021, I went to Amsterdam with my then partner. And um, before we went, you know, I spent 10 days with, uh, with my dad. And by the end of this, I was pretty overwhelmed and depressed. And, and then I got to Amsterdam. And I thought to myself, 
well, uh, I don't want to hang out <laughs> in, in Amsterdam while feeling this way, so I'm going to give myself a session, right? So I, d- I decided to give myself a, a cannabis therapy session. And so we were at an Airbnb, and I did not want her to be a part of this because I knew about the, the whole transference piece. And so I was in the bedroom. The door was closed. I was going into my own process with it, and she was out in the rest of the, the, the apartment. I will tell you that my mind reached out and the very fact that even though I asked her to not be a part of this session, even the fact that she wasn't in the room became incredibly meaningful to me Mm. in that state, right? So I'm telling you, every sound that I heard, just walking around, opening doors, closing doors, opening a drawer, getting, you know, a spoon out or something like that, those were just sounds that further validated a sense of being, uh, a sense of emptiness and not being cared for, mm. right? So that was my goggles that I was wearing. And even though this person wasn't in the room, like it, like every movement that she made was validating that reality for me, mm. right? And I will tell you that, um, so I sunk into that world and at the end of the session, I wasn't complete with it. I didn't get fully to the other side. And so for the next three days... I, uh, I was convinced that, um, she couldn't stand me. I was convinced that, um, she hated me and that I was loathsome to her. Mm. Right. And, and let me remind you that this is something I teach this stuff for a living. I know (laughs) this. And so my, my mind knew not to believe it. Right. So my top down process knew that, okay, this is not real, but I'm telling you, because once I opened the door with the cannabis and this bottom up, somatic process um the the that world was really hanging out there right and so um i just felt it so keenly for for three days and finally you know the fever broke thankfully and i was like okay thank god like i don't think that anymore and you know so that that was a a blessing but i i will tell you so it normally it doesn't break that quickly i think people need a lot of support for to um, to a not believe their transference, right? So, I mean, think about it. We're we're doing something really interesting here. We're saying that, you know, here's this world that you carry inside of you. It's it's valid and it's true insofar as it comes from some real things that have happened to you. But when it emerges, we're also asking them to not fully believe it, right? Um, which is this really strange position to find yourself in, right? We're saying. Here's something that your bottom up, your senses are telling you about reality, and it might be useful to bring some doubt to the to the picture here, mm-hmm. right? And and that's it's not just something I'm suggesting to clients. I mean, it's something that I have to practice myself at times. Like, don't always believe what your <laughs> mind, what your mind or your body brings to you, right? Mm-hmm. It could be part of this this trance world. You'll notice that all we had to do was just scratch just a little bit. And then this entire charged transferential reality emerged for Natasha, right? So and it filled up the room and it's intense, right? And so, and, and she has a master's degree, right? She's a competent human being. She's a mom. And, and so what that means is she's able to do all that, live a life while all of this charge is still there. It's just very well compartmentalized, right? It's just very well kind of tucked away. So just because it's not at the surface doesn't mean that it's not powerfully in a person's system. And so 
I think the um, the ethical dilemma shows up when therapists only want to allow the the positive transferential rules, mm-hmm. right? Or another way of saying that is when therapists only want to when when therapists get seduced by the positive transferential rule, right? Mm-hmm. So, and and here's what I mean by that, right? So, um, and I think I mentioned last time I was here, I, you and I talked about this at one point, but you know, in the the maps trials. We had the luxury of having two therapists for each participant, right? And very quickly, this happened often enough, very quickly, the participant's mind would pick one therapist to be their idealized parent, right? It's the parent that they wish they got, they, the parent that was empathic and well-attuned and would really listen to them, right? And, and that's the role that many therapists love to play with clients. And that's a th- role that's absolutely needed, right? So I'm not being critical of that at all. We definitely need that, that corrective if we, if we never had it, right? However, then the, back to the MAPS trial, the participant's mind would then pick the other therapist to, be the, to hold the, the memory of the parent that they did get. Right, so the disappointing parent, the uh, abandoning parent, the perpetrating parent at times. So you can imagine if you're, you know, you're working all day and you know people's transference is coming towards you, which of these you might prefer, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Mm. Right. So uh, having negative transference come to, come towards you is very difficult, right? So and you might not, you might not believe, you might remember who you are and say like, no, no, I'm I I. I I'm a good person and I do this because I care about people. But, you know, after the first hour or so, you might be able to hold on to that. But maybe, you know, four hours in, five hours in, six hours Mm -hmm. in, getting negative transference, you're going to go home and feel like you got run over by a truck. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, this is all to say that, um, you know, the positive, the idealized parent role is the one that therapists identify with. That's how we want to be seen. Um, and that's the one that, that resources us, right? That's what makes a, a really difficult job worth it at times. One of the, the questions that I uh, ask to students in our trainings and throughout supervision is, in what way can you not bear to be seen by your client? Mm. Right. And so whatever answer people give, that's the type of transference that your client cannot work with you. Right. So in other words, if you cannot bear to be seen as incompetent, if you cannot bear to be seen as somebody who doesn't care, if you cannot bear to be seen as somebody who might hurt somebody, those are the negative transferences that your client cannot work with you. Right. So, um, and of course, so here's the, the central dilemma then, right? So when you evoke the positive, when you're working with a family of origin events that, uh, that will have transference to them and you're evoking the positive, that means you're um, evoking the negative. And if the negative transference is not allowed in the therapy container, does it go away? Right? Does it does it magically all of a sudden does it not exist? And and of course the question is no, it exists. It just uh, it it goes to some it goes to somebody else. It goes to another relationship in the client's life, mm-hmm. right? And so I think this is the real sort of devastating part of uh, the dark side of therapy, which is that you know um, th- doing individual therapy can break up relationships. 
Right? And uh, and we have a story about that. We have it. We you know we tell ourselves the field tells itself that yeah you know if one person grows and the other person doesn't choose to grow then you know it makes sense that they may grow apart. And certainly that does happen, right? Certainly that that can be a thing. The other thing that could possibly be happening is that you know somebody comes into therapy, they're working family of origin, early developmental things where there was a perpetrator involved, and the therapist insists on hogging the positive transference roles and the negative transference roles goes to the person's spouse. Mm. Right. Yeah. I see this. Oh yeah. Same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, um, in my wife sees this too. She does a lot of couples work that, uh, and I see people trying to do this actually in my office. Some of the people that I, my individual patients that they want to, uh, really dump on their relationship and their spouse and sort of win me over as kind of the advocate cheerleader, like listen to how bad things are for me and just all the horribleness of my spouse. And then I often find I have to really push myself to think, okay, marriage is 50, 50. <laughs> this person is not seeing their spouse clearly. Um, and then if I met the spouse, we could do the same thing about my patient but it's yeah, it's very easy to just jump on the bandwagon, you know. Mm-hmm. Or your dad's terrible, or yeah, your spouse is so awful, or they're a narcissist. You know, it seems like that's the catchword right now. Oh, my spouse is a narcissist, or my mom, and you know, sometimes true, but sometimes you know, it's like you're trying to co-create this boogeyman, yeah, and that y'all can feel good together, that you are allied against this terrible yeah, person. Exactly. And the, the thing is that there probably is a boogeyman in there someplace, but is it the person's spouse or is it something about their history that's being evoked? I wanted to leave you all with a fascinating postscript, which I think brings even more richness and mystery to this story. I called Natasha this week as I was preparing this episode, and I asked her what happened after the session we just heard. I peppered her with all these questions like, did you know the choking fear was going to come up? And why the fixation on Saja's hands? And who tried to choke you? And were you the victim of a bunch of assaults? And finally, I asked her, what did you learn from this session? Natasha then went on to describe the integration sessions that followed this transference session. She and Saj came to understand her fear of being choked as a metaphor, not a literal reenactment of some prior assault. In Natasha's family of origin, she was the designated secret keeper, and she had to hold some awful truths that couldn't be spoken. And then later, as a young woman, she was in an abusive relationship with a stalker boyfriend in which, again, she felt she couldn't speak. Her only safety was to remain silent. She told me that these psychedelic somatic sessions highlighted how much of her life she was in a dissociative state. The medicine sessions allowed her to go back into the family photo book and really understand it. I was always the master compartmentalizer, she said. I had so much fear and I just shut it all down. A final note on Natasha's ability to shut down her deepest feelings. After she finished Saj's week-long training, Her initial reports to me were both how wonderful the training was and how much she liked Saj. Yet when I spoke to Natasha a few days ago, 
She admitted that when she first arrived on day one of the training, she was the first person there. And realizing that she was alone with a man, Saj, it sent her into a profound sense of panic, which she wasn't fully able to understand at the time. It was only after the psychedelic somatic work and the subsequent integration sessions that she was able to understand her somatic reaction to first meeting Saj and how this was a deep signal of her lack of safety around men.